Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 182, recorded for the week of September 14th, 2022. There's a wild mandugal loose in the theater. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. Uh, hey, Justin. Hey there. Yeah, it, uh, with Man- Mandate and Google uh, merging together this week, it, Mandugal is the, the official, what Twitter calls it now. And uh, <laughs> it just reminds me of uh, Fandango and the early commercials used to have in front of every movie back in the 90s about a wild Fandango loose in the theater. <laughs> so. uh, well, it is a uh, slow news week once again, because we're only a few weeks out from Google Cloud Next uh, and you know, reinvents about a month and a half or two months away. Uh, so we're sort of in the the, uh, the quiet before the storm hits. So I like to think, think of it at least. So uh, we'll get through this quickly today. First up, uh, I have a general news story from HashiCorp. The console Terraform Sync is now generally available at the 0.7 release. This release marks another step in the maturity of the larger network infrastructure automation solution. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard of console Terraform Sync, it does exactly what you'd expect. It syncs console and Terraform. Uh, It combines the functionality of Terraform Console to eliminate manual ticket-based systems across on-premise and cloud environments. The cloud Terraform Sync has evolved since the last time we talked about it, with the ability for day zero and day one operations to use Terraform to quickly deploy network and infrastructure in a consistent and reproducible manner. And once established, teams manage day two networking tasks by integrating Console's catalog to register services into the system via CTS. Whenever a change is recorded to the service, CTS triggers a Terraform run that uses the partner ecosystem integrations to automate updates and deployments for load balancers, firewall policies, and other service-defined networking components. Uh, It's been quite a journey uh, from the CTS 0.1 and CTS 0.2 days uh, to enable publishers, subscriber, pub-sub paradigms, all the way to now uh, enterprise version and version uh, 0.4, and then now this latest version for cloud agent and console support and the 0.7 release giving you this new functionality all available to you now. So pretty nice if you're in the uh, console Terraform space. Yeah, I've, I've never had a workload that was mature enough to use this or either on the, the networking side or the Terraform side, uh, unfortunately. Because like, this is sort of the, the holy grail, right? Like you... You update your Terraform resources. Terraform detects that change, and it goes out and it automatically configures your, you know, your Amazon or GCP resources. Um, or you know, if you're, I mean, I forget what all is included in that partner network, but there's other things as well, right? So it'd be fantastic. This is more than just the sort of calico and mesh network that you get in Kubernetes. This is a little bit uh, higher up the stack, which is great. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like a software-defined networking as code kind of thing. We'll keep the config in, in console. Yeah, I uh, I def- also have not had a mature enough workload to use this, but I like the idea of it. <laughs> so someday, someday I mm-hmm. hope to have it. Yeah, hopefully things like this become you know commonplace and ubiquitous, right? Because it's it's still very difficult in most most environments, right, to get that connectivity established, whether you're doing you know cross-site or just getting something exposed publicly, like a service endpoint or something along those lines. Um, and, you know, in secure environments where there's highly, you know, regulated workloads, so there might be auditing. Or, you know, just do what I do in my own my own account, just open up everything. Who cares? 
All right. Well, you could definitely do that. I don't know if I'd recommend that path. And, <laughs> I definitely don't recommend that. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to move on to Amazon stories, <laughs> ignoring the bad advice of, the, of our co-host here. <laughs> Amazon uh, SWF, uh, or Simple Workflow Service, is launching a new console experience. Uh, and because this predates the CloudPod podcast by at least seven years, uh, we have no idea what this was. So Simple Workflow Service apparently was launched in 2012. Uh, which apparently makes it easier to just build distributed applications. You have full control over the implementation and coordination of tasks, and Amazon WSF manages the underlying complexities such as tracking their progress and maintaining their state. You can run your app on-premises or on Amazon EC2 using SWF, which I wonder when I got that feature for on-premise, because that might have been really early multi-cloud that I never pay attention to. Right? Yeah. I've never heard of this either, and so I was confused. Like, is this a... Can't tell like where in the space is this interfering with Beanstalk or is this, um, you know, or step functions? This is, you know, I'm confused. It's, yeah, it's more like a precursor to step functions in a way. It was, it was the, or- the orchestration engine. It, it was all built around Java. And so you built in the, um, you know, Amazon run the state machine as the workload service. And then your apps would sort of check in with the state machine, update their states. Um, but it was all, all for Java. Justin's actually forgotten that one of our customers a long time ago. Uh, built the whole business around uh, orchestrating data flows using simple workflow service. <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably blacked it out because it was bad, wasn't it? <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, it was. Uh, I won't. No, I won't mention names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the fact that I don't remember it means either was it was either worked so well that I forgot about it, or it worked so badly that I blacked it out with booze. It's one of the two. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it really, really was the sort of the the serverful um, precursor to to what Step Functions is nowadays. So I'm I'm surprised they're not just pretending it never existed and, and push people in the direction of Step Functions and, and Lambda anymore. But um, but the fact that it does work multi-cloud is is very useful. Yeah, the fact that it's uh, getting a new console experience and that it's high enough on the list that it's getting a new console experience before most of the rest of the console is is a little bit weird. Or the fact they realized, oh, it hasn't had a console update in 12 years, and so we need to do it now <laughs> so it can take advantage of the new stuff in the future. Or uh, maybe maybe. Uh, maybe they're going to do something cool with it at reInvent. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's got, it had some holes. I mean, it's, um, it really didn't support any kind of multi-region failover type, type things that you would have to build in, into, your, into the code of your app. So maybe, uh, maybe the fact that it's actually getting some love is a sign that there were some updates to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Uh, well, a service that's also very old that is getting an update this week, uh, Amazon SNS is launching a public preview of message data protection, which is a new set of capabilities for SNS standard topics that leverages pattern matching machine learning models and data protection policies to help security and engineering teams facilitate real-time data protection in their applications that use SNS. And then they had a follow-up blog, which I was able to get more details. And so basically what this says is they can scan messages in real-time for PAI and PHA data, and receive audit reports containing those scan results. And you can also prevent applications from receiving sensitive data by blocking inbound messages to an SNS topic or outbound messages to an SNS subscription, which for those of you who've used SNS for log delivery, uh, this is super helpful. <laughs> there are over 25 <laughs> unique PAI and PHI data identifiers, including people's names, addresses, social security numbers, credit card numbers, and prescription drug codes uh, available out of the box. Yeah, I mean, this is handy for any number of things, right? Logging, like you mentioned, or just, you know, the, you know, payload for invoking your Lambda functions. So, great. Yeah, it kind of raises the question about where you should put this security boundary. Whether whether this is the right place for it or whether somewhere else is the right place for it. 
or maybe lots of places are the right place yeah. for it. <laughs> I mean, that's the, the problem, right? You, you're balancing the complexity and the supportability no matter what. You know, you want defense in depth so you can catch it anywhere, but you also sort of, is this going to be completely unsupportable <laughs> because it's tokenizing or 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 dropping your notification? Yeah, why, why is my message arriving? Because it had something that looks like somebody's name in, but actually it wasn't. It was the name of a server that, you know, it's Gandalf. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, there are definitely ramifications of it, but you know it's also nice to be able to tell a security person. Well, not only do we have the ability to, you know, scan our code with static and dynamic code analysis and look for these type of scenarios, but now also we have this additional validation. So again, defense and layers is your play here, but uh, troubleshooting just gets harder. <laughs> it's what mm-hmm. I, the more complex the cloud gets, the more hard it is to troubleshoot when things go wrong, and yeah, that's a definite. Uh, you know, this number, this GUID looks a lot like a credit card number, mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden gets whacked from a log, which you might have needed. Yeah, everything we everything that we heard from the security vendors around identifying this type of data in S3 or or um, EBS volumes it was all about the context in which the data was found. I mean, any seven-digit number, eight-digit number could be a social security number or a phone number or something else. I mean, it's it's all about the context. So if you're just sending numbers to SNS, it, it can't possibly know that that's the type of number that it is. So you must you must have to you know send some significant portion of data so that it can look at it and say okay this looks like a this looks like a uh, a person personal um uh, information record i think i think it's gonna be quite limited in, in its actual capacity in reality yeah again it's it checks a box but yeah is it valuable or not getting an audit report of this data might be suspect for months why it learns the machine learning model may not be so great well, uh, AWS is announcing Seekable OCI for lazy loading container images. Uh, Seekable OCI, or Sochi, is a technology open source by AWS that enables containers to launch faster by lazily loading the container image. Sochi works by creating an index of the files within the existing container image. And this index is a key enabler to launching containers faster, providing the capability to extract an individual file from a container image before downloading the entire archive. Most methods are for launching containers, download the entire container image from a remote container registry before starting the container, and waiting for all that data is was wasteful in cases where only a small amount of the data is actually needed to start the container itself. Uh, apparently, researchers have shown that container image downloads account for 70%, uh, 76% of container startup time, but on average, only 6.4% of the data is needed for the container to actually start doing useful work. I think uh, I think Google started this, didn't they, with their features on EKS, or sorry, GKE, uh, that they added the capability to do lazy loading of images. Yeah, I remember we talked about that a while ago. Yeah, it's neat. I mean, I, I guess the more, the, the more, if you don't squash your layers down into a, into a single layer, then you can hope that at least some of the some of the layers are cached, and what you download from the registries is not a lot of duplicated data. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I guess when you're being billed by by the millisecond, every second counts. Seventy six percent saving is is pretty pretty worthwhile. Well, even just, you know, you think about scaling, scaling up, you know, to, you know, that delay, if you can get that down faster, you know, then it's less interruption. I think what I really like about this is just how, like, it's not built into the service and abstracted like this, you know, this is basically an ability to run this against your existing images and then just provide this alongside your container definition and container D will do the rest, which is presumably that's not even something you have to be specific. So that would work across any um, you know, container hosting infrastructure on any cloud, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I keep seeing OCI, then thinking Oracle Cloud. I know <laughs> <laughs> we've been we've been uh, ingrained a different way that it's OCI. 
All right. Well, moving on to Google Cloud, it's time to register for Google Cloud Next, which is coming up very quickly on October 11th. The 24-hour Follow the Sun Global Digital Broadcast features live keynotes from five locations across the globe, including New York, Sunnyvale, Tokyo, Bengaluru, and Munich. You can join for Google Next digitally or in person at one of Google's partners and developer community-sponsored events. The conference is free, and you can register today with a great thing that it will be translated to nine languages using the Cloud Translate API and for live stream and session content, you can get turn on closed captioning with additional 180 language support. Uh, I hopefully you don't need that because you're listening to an English podcast, but you know if you do, it's available to you. <laughs> uh, you apparently will be able to create your own playlist of content, uh, as well as there'll be online section areas where you can hang out with fellow developers, engage in the community via chat messages, which is always great when you're dealing with Google Chat in any form, uh, which I'm sure will be great for the event. Yep, I reached it last week. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Create your own playlist, right? That's that's always sort of, sort of the harder part of these digital conferences is finding the right videos or sessions. So, like, I like the idea that you can just load them all up, and hopefully, you can you know watch a little bit, go away, come back, restart. But see, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, the place is great, and then they they also they'll give you a curated playlists as well. So, if you're not sure, but you're interested in DevOps topics, they'll have that as a playlist you can just pick up and and watch through. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see what they kind of produce as they put the content pipeline out there, but uh, potentially a lot of really good content coming out of Google Next. Yeah, I really like the playlist out there. I hope they keep it available. I hope you can keep creating your own playlists and sharing them well after the event, because I think as far as training goes in the enterprise, it'd be really useful to put together these playlists of historical uh, recordings and send them out to the appropriate teams and say, this is this, we think this is suitable for you, or this is suitable for you. It's always hard to fish through thousands of uh, sessions. AWS were looking at you as well for reInvent to um, <laughs> to sort of filter through all those things and find the things that are relevant to uh, mm-hmm. to your teams. Yeah. Well, I definitely think the days of you know in person priority for conferences are fr- probably over. <laughs> so at least in the future, I suppose we're going to see more and more hybrid conferences, and hybrid will be the future of all conferences because it gets you more access and it gets you ability to. You know, bring in a global community without having to fly them all to Las Vegas and put them in very expensive hotels and have them fight with, you know, sixty-five thousand people who are their not their best friends, uh, <laughs> you know, in a in a fight for swag. So I mean, all that doesn't sound great. Uh, and so if you can get it all digitally and and still get stuff, I think that's a great way to go. So I do like to see it. All right. Well, digital drive uh, or driving to digital is a big part of all businesses right now as everyone talks to get more digital and more enabled in this pandemic, post-pandemic world. Uh, and so enterprises are looking to, of course, accelerate their cloud adoption as part of this digital transformation. And it's critical to not only upskill your tech talent, but to focus on skilling your non-technical teams too, or okay, the business people. Investing in your collective cloud proficiency helps ensure you fully embrace everyone's potential and make the most out of your cloud investments. Apparently, IDC did some studying on this and said that uh, comprehensively trained organizations see a bigger impact versus narrowly trained organizations with 133% greater improvement in employee retention, a 47% reduction in business risk, and 22% increase in innovation. And this is where the new cloud digital leader training and certification can benefit you. Most cloud training inserts are geared toward technical cloud practitioners like the three of us, uh, leaving non-technical teams like Peter with little understanding of cloud technologies. Cloud Digital Leader is meant to bridge the gap, providing easy-to-understand training that enables everyone to understand the capabilities of the cloud so that they can contribute to digital transformation in their organizations. And I have a quote here from Christopher Schweiger, Google Cloud Business Development Executive, Global Strategic Alliances at Kindrel. 
Our sales teams who work with customers and learn about their challenges were able to apply the know-how from their cloud digital leader education and certification, and they can now guide the technical solution teams in the right direction without having to pull them into the discovery phases of their customer interactions. As a result, we operated more quickly and efficiently as the sales teams were able to speak to the Google Cloud Solutions very early on in the sales cycle, and this accelerated the sales process as the sales teams were, therefore, more confident in their Google Cloud knowledge, saving time and money for them and their customer. Mm. Can't help but feel this is slightly uh, placing sleeper agents in, in, in enterprises, you know, <laughs> like training them, <laughs> training them that uh, Google's away. So that when when their technical resources come along and say, "Hey, we want to do this," like, "Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely." <laughs> well, I mean, Amazon's been doing this for a lot longer than them. Yeah. <laughs> so, if sleeper agents are a thing, Amazon has the lead on those sleeper agents for sure. Yeah, the cert, the the new certification is sort of interesting because it's a little bit more. Like the the content isn't new, right? But the certification is new, and so it's it's interesting metric. Like, how do you how do you ensure people are reviewing the content? You have these certifications, and then you measure on the completion of that. So, like, it's I can see how it's a little bit of like weaponizing, you know, those metrics in order to like drive culture change, maybe within an org where there's division over private cloud or public cloud, or you know, it just depends on what you want to do. But it's very interesting. I'm interested yeah. to to take it actually and see exactly you know what do you have to do to get the certification? Is it is it a checkbox for having taken the training or is it a test? Mm-hmm. I mean, and then and how do you how do you test somebody's? Um, I guess it's a thought process or mindset in a way. It's a that's a difficult thing to actually mm-hmm. objectively analyze. Yeah, I mean, how do you test on anything? Even in technical practitioner things like okay, great. So you're making a choice between four. Four options. I'm, I'm, I have a 25 percent chance of getting it right. <laughs> so it's, you know, how good are you are guessing? Uh, it's a bit of a mess. But you know, I think getting the common language of cloud is a big benefit. We talked about that before in the show. That you know, being able to talk to professional services or customer support people or even your sales team or solutions architects and and have them talk in cloud terms that everyone understands is super helpful. Um, and I, I definitely don't know if it's 133 percent greater improvement in employee retention. But I definitely see a reduction in business risk and an increase in innovation driven by that common language. Yeah, definitely. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. Well, there's new ways to protect your application with BeyondCorp Enterprise. Uh, BeyondCorp Enterprise earlier this year announced the ability to integrate with technology vendors and incorporate them into a zero-trust access policy. Uh, now they're announcing they are now integrating with Microsoft Intune. This integration allows orgs to craft zero-trust access policies and to protect private applications and SaaS applications, including Office 365, based on data collected from the Intune Graph API, including device posture and trust signals. These policies can be applied across end-user devices no matter where they are located. 
You guys are wowed by Intune. I see Completely it. Completely wowed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zero trust. That's the thing. Beyond Corp Enterprise. Go. <laughs> well, maybe I can get you more excited about Mandugul. Uh, the Google acquisition of Mandiant, a leader in dynamic cyber defense, threat intelligence, and incident response services, has officially closed. Mandiant shares Google's cybersecurity vision and will join Google Cloud to help organizations improve their threat, incident, and exposure management. Combining Google's security portfolio with Mandiant's leading cyber threat intelligence will allow Google to deliver security ops to help enterprises stay protected at every stage of the security lifecycle. Mandiant will apparently retain the Mandiant brand, but I suspect there will be start seeing more services powered by Mandiant on GCP in the future. There's a quote here from Paulo Dalsin, global lead at Accenture Security. The power of stronger partnerships across the cybersecurity ecosystem is critical to driving value for clients and protecting industries around the globe. A combination of Google Cloud and Mandiant and their commitment to multi-cloud will further support increased collaboration, drive innovation across the cybersecurity industry, and augmenting threat research capabilities. We look forward to working with them on this mission in the future. I'm, I mean, I'm just really curious to see how this is going to you know play out it is sort of an interesting thing with the, the dual branding I, you know like i'm sure it's probably you know going to be over time the you know we'll see these little changes but you know it's kind of cool i mean i mean well mandate has a bunch of technology you can buy and i mean the real value is the cybersecurity threat modeling stuff that they have and if they can turn that into more products powered by the google cloud and available to you as a google cloud customer i think that's a big demonstrator especially considering how you know, Amazon is so heavily tied to partners for security enablement. Uh, this is now part of the platform built in from Mandiant from the day one. That's a that's a great idea and a great benefit potentially to um, customers of Google Cloud. I think it'll be a big driver in the future. Yeah, I wonder if you're going to get Google Ads integration with this. You know, they start threat modeling people based on their, their user behavior. <laughs> Pop up ads. Maybe you should consider some training. <laughs> You seem like a possible person who get fished by the that you've <laughs> opened our emails in the past. No, I mean I, I joke, but to be to be fair, the um, modeling customers' behavior is something that Google is excellent at, and and uh, Mandiant and Google definitely sort of have this synergy in terms of what they do with with uh, user behavior. Yeah, agreed. Well, in our final Google story for this week, Google says a comprehensive backup strategy should include the following characteristics. Centralized backup management across workloads, efficient use of storage to minimize the cost, and a minimal recovery times. To effectively address these requirements, backup service providers must deliver efficiency at the workload level, while also supporting a diverse spectrum of customer environments, applications, and use cases. And Google is now entering the fray with the general availability of Google Backup and DR, enabling centralized backup management directly from the Google Cloud Console. Google is focused on delivering an intuitive, centralized backup management experience, and backup admins can effectively manage backups spanning multiple workloads, including uh, uh, admins can generate app and crash-consistent backups of VMs, VMware Engine, or on-premise VMware databases and file systems. Having a holistic view of your backups across multiple workloads means you spend less time on management and can be sure you have consistency and completeness in your data protection coverage. Uh, even better, Google Cloud Backup and DR stores backups data in its original application-readable format. As a result, backup data for many workloads can be made available directly from long-term backup storage with no need for time-consuming data movement or translation activities. That's something funny here. But <laughs> 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 I mean, I, I appreciate they've launched this, this new tool, but... It's, it's kind of funny to say, you know, the leading with Google says a comprehensive backup strategy should be, should include blah, blah, blah. Like that was always the case, but you've only just released this as a service. How many years? Right. In? Yeah, like, exactly. 
Well, I mean, the, the, it's kind of interesting because uh, when I think about this, I think about like what a boon it is to these cloud providers to offer a backup service because it's just a revenue generating stream, right? Like the backing up is expensive. It's all just, you know, copying your data somewhere and having that an additional copy for, you know, then what's running. And then, you know, the service really comes around to being the visualization layer. Like, how do I prove that backups are happening? How do I, you know, how do I evidence that for an audit and you know, that kind of thing? So it's actually kind of, kind of smart. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, if, if you had a backup strategy, this would be pretty easy to implement yourself in a, you know, but it's, it's toil that no one likes doing. So, you know, now it's all built into a service and an easy to read dashboard, no doubt. I mean, have you seen Google's dashboards? I don't, easy to read is <laughs> maybe a stretch, but I'll, I'll give you two that it's in a yeah. common place. But, you know, yeah. I, I was just working on some backup strategy stuff at work and it was like, well, this is great. This is perfect timing because we're using Google and we could maybe use this. So I'm, mm-hmm. this one actually might have some immediate applicability to, uh, to my day job, which would be mm-hmm. great. I mean, the real interesting part is the on-premise yeah. VMware side of things, right? Like that's, well, an idea that it's actually storing them in its native format in S3, or GCS in this case, uh, and that's now available to me with a common data platform of Google Cloud, that's actually kind of interesting too, because it could enable some really interesting use cases too, which could be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, think of the migration aspects of that. I, I just read that as they're storing disk images, you know, they're taking snapshots of things, and and for, for ease of, you know, you don't have to restore a SQL backup Back, you know, backup file into a SQL Server that takes six hours to restore yesterday's full backup. It's literally you swap the disk out for the for the for the copy of yesterday's disk and start it going and hold on. But but even if that's true, the fact that it came from on-premise and now it's potentially in my Google Cloud world is still an accelerator. So mm-hmm. yeah, it has benefits, just maybe not as ones I was thinking of. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. still beneficial in many ways. Yeah, definitely. Well, moving on to Azure, uh, they apparently have had backups for a while, but now they have alerts of backups with the built-in Azure Monitor alerts for Azure backups in general availability. And with this solution, users receive alerts for critical scenarios related to backup security and job failures that are integrated with Azure Monitor. You can monitor these alerts at scale via either the Azure Monitor dashboard or via Backup Center and route these alerts to various notification channels of choice. The main benefits of using Azure Monitor for backups are ability to configure notification to a wide range of notification channels supported by Azure Monitor, ability to select which scenarios you get notified for, and ability to have a consistent alert management experience with multiple Azure services, including backup with at-scale management capabilities. And so for Google, until its release, they did not have a comprehensive backup strategy with centralized backup management across all workloads. So welcome, Azure, to the party. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, like I said, the service is all about, you know, the, the visualization and, and now the alerting of whether your backups are happening or not, which I know there are specific compliance controls that get mapped to ensuring they're monitoring things for this. And so, like, for your backups, and whether it makes sense or not, they, you know, I've had to implement controls. Yeah, because I had to write, write the code for that. I had to write the thing that, that sent the notification to say the backup mm-hmm. hadn't happened that should have happened on a certain schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and like Otter has gotten really, Otter's gotten really weird about that kind of stuff too. Like, they're like, well, we want to know that the backup didn't occur. I'm like, well, but but normally you would know the backup didn't occur because the backup job failed. Like, no, no, we want to know that that only happens if uh, the backup actually runs. Then it can fail. 
and then you get an alert. But what if it didn't run at all? And like, well, okay, now you're just breaking my brain. <laughs> like, nothing about this scenario makes sense to me. But that's what they worry about in yeah. audit these days. Yeah, I mean, it's all about controls and how you implement them, right? If you can, if you if you audit your your process, or you routinely, you know, fail over between DR sites, you can mitigate a lot of these things where um, where you don't have to have like something that rings a pager or phone or Slack bot. But, uh, you know, it's a lot of people are just want to know if it fails and send a notification. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking there's more, there's more insight to be, to be more insight, more insight to be, to be got from the reason backups fail. I mean, is it, is it failing because the way you're trying to send it to is full? You don't have permission. Is it failing because it's taking 26 hours to do a backup? every 24 hours and, and uh, it never finishes on time or it gets canceled. So I think a lot of this is, is useful to feed back into an SRE type, type stream to figure out, well, why is this failing in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's if you like using teams, you know, when, when I see it, you know, you, your various notification channels of choice, that's, that's teams, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. As long as it means, as long as your channel is teams, you're good to go. Well, apparently Azure Space was launched two years ago, uh, which blows my mind because it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Uh, and Azure, of course, has announced partnerships over those two years, products and tools that have focused on how they can bring together the power of cloud with the possibilities of space. And Azure is announcing the next wave of products enhancements launching. Launching. <laughs> and this week include announcing the Azure Orbital Cloud Access Preview, a brand new service that brings the power of the MS Cloud to wherever you need it most. Which, if it's space, it's still not space. But they made it sound like it's space, but it's not. But it's easier <laughs> connectivity to space. <laughs> the general availability of Ground Station today, alongside partner networks, networks including KSAT, and making the service available to all satellite operators such as Pixel, Moon, and Loft. And the third one is advancing the digital transformation of satellite communication networks with the first demonstration of virtualized iDirect modems and with SES, a new joint satellite communication virtualization program. And this is all really cool as somebody who's really into satellites. Yeah, maybe they want to hold off launching things until uh, the Russians stop trying to shoot things down with the lasers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was just hearing actually something about... uh, you know, the U.S. government or NATO wants to stop investment in, you know, anti-satellite, you know, provision, you know, missile provisioning systems. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not too bad. That's, that's a bad choice. Uh, but yeah, this, uh, this, this first one, though, that I sort of laughed about, the uh, announcing the Azure Orbital Cloud Access Preview. Uh, is, so it really, it's, it's Azure connected to Microsoft-provided SAT communication that then connects to customer-provided fiber or customer-provided cellular to then the edge to then the compute network in space. So, not quite uh, where I need it, but close enough, I guess. Yeah, that last mile is a step. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a step for sure. And that is it uh, for the main show. And Peter is not here to lead us through lightning round, so uh, we'll just round robin it. And Jonathan, I put you first. Okay. Multi instance GPU support in AKS. Because if you're going to do GPUs, it's going to be with Windows boxes for sure. <laughs> Now's the time to do GPUs, though. Now everyone's, everyone's trying to sell them. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's a good time to buy a GPU, for sure. Yep. <laughs> AWS Backup adds Amazon CloudWatch metrics to its console dashboard. They, too, needed a uh, Google fully managed backup solution to give you a comprehensive solution with backups. 
Wait, are we are we backing up the metrics? Or are we metricing the yeah, backups? Yeah, I, I, I know. I like. It took me a while to, to like, or is this just silly? Like they've just really added numbers to the dashboard and it's like, we got to release something. No, just put a little graph in there, a little embedded graph. Yeah. It tells you how many successful backups you had today, I'm sure. Yeah. You monitor your data protection metrics of backup, copy, and restore jobs. What, what more could you want? It's perfect. CloudWatch teams like our, uh, yeah. like the user quota for, for uh, custom graphs is down. Let's, let's add them to another service. Anyway. Yeah. Amazon RDS Performance Insights now supports displaying top 25 SQL queries. All 25 non-performant. <laughs> it's never 25. It's like the 1,000 blocked queries that are my problem. <laughs> <laughs> no. I was going to make a funny joke, but it's actually not that funny. I'll, I'll move on. Was it not in the top 25? <sighs> I really need to display all the queries. I mean, you should be able to do analytics on all the queries. Not just the top 25, you should be able to export everything, the performance for everything. Because then you can graph it over time. Like the, the top 25 bad ones today might not, may not be the top 25 bad ones tomorrow. So I want to see how that changes over time. As I said, not funny. SageMaker Studio now supports Glue interactive sessions. I mean, your last answer was a little bit sticky, so I get it. But, uh, uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, really the big thing here is that you know who wants to be able to deal with ETL data? Big data scientist people. So yes, please connect SageMaker to Glue. And maybe they'll actually work out a solution that works. That'd be perfect. <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, every interaction I have with both these services is just frustration and swearing. So I, I guess that is an interaction. <laughs> it is one, yep. AWS Firewall Manager adds support for AWS WAF custom requests and responses. So when your uh, API keys get uh, blocked, you can respond with, I own all your stuff. Mm -hmm. Please pay me a million dollars. Perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, I keep trying to figure out how I would like make this to where I can do custom responses. Like, you know, you got pwned. I got pwned. Go away. Instead <laughs> of, you know, standard HTTP responses. Yeah, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Azure dedicated host support for ultra disk storage is now generally available. How do you make that funny? <sighs> well, the first one you burn money and then you added more ways to burn money. So now you can, <laughs> if you look too, if you look to the server too much, you know, your accountants will start crying as the, as the brightness of the light that's coming from it. This is a feature, isn't it? More than it is, um, just an indication of the way they rolled out. Uh, you know the improvements to the storage system. Presumably, they they didn't roll it out to the dedicated hosts first. They rolled them out to the other hosts where more cons more consumers could actually. Uh, yeah, I assume it's a percentage of how many yeah. customers will benefit from this feature, and the number of people using dedicated hosts should hopefully be low. So, yeah. or there's that one customer that was like, "I need this for," but I already sunk all this cost into my dedicated hosts, and we're willing to pay you lights of money that we burn on fire mm -hmm. uh, if you give it to us. Yeah, it's Oracle, isn't it? It's Oracle. Oracle. It's always Oracle. <laughs> so what I've learned about all these like really big instances and all the cloud providers, the X1, the X2s, the M1, M2s on GCP, they're all for SAP HANA or yeah. Oracle. It's yeah. one of the two. Um, AWS Fargate announces migration of service quotas to vCPU-based quotas. I mean, vCPU, I thought we got there a long time ago with uh, savings plans, but apparently we didn't. What was it before? Yeah. I think how do you know that your quota system is a little bit more too complex when you're announcing changes via feature enhancement to this? <laughs> Oof. Right. Yeah, that's a little rough. And finally, 
Now generally available, standard network features for Azure NetApp files. Hurrah! <laughs> the fact that it's standard network features is the best part. Like, So you, before, you couldn't get <laughs> access to the files you put on the NetApp files. We charged you for them, but you couldn't access them over the network because you didn't have the standard capabilities that are required to make that happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it's pickable now. Nice. <laughs> Microsoft, words matter. You can't just say standard. Like... <laughs> Enhanced network makes some more sense because then you can say, okay, there's new things, but yeah. Yeah, uh, at least at least stick with the premium and ultra premium kind of terminology. We know where we stand now, but now now standard and basic, we're, we're all getting getting confused. Yeah, the fact that you wanted basic, I was like, oh, that storage is so basic. Basic. <laughs> so basic. All right, well, that's uh, a fantastic lightning round. I don't know if any of us won, but... Uh, I think Peter won here. by not being here. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, give, let's give him the extra point. <laughs> <laughs> so even notices why he won the point next week. He know he'll, he never notices though. Like we said that a couple of times. Like oh he'll uh, he'll be able to tell us about it, and then we get there, and uh, yeah, it doesn't happen. So all right, well things coming up here. We're quickly we're heading into October with Elasticon, October fourth in San Francisco. You'll find Jonathan picketing outside with a picket a sign says <laughs> the world is ending. Get rid of Elasticsearch. <laughs> Uh, the following week will be Google Cloud Next, October 11th through 13th. And then the week after that, Oracle Cloud World, October 17th through 20th in the beautiful Las Vegas, followed by the DevOps Enterprise Summit, October 18th through the 20th in Las Vegas, followed right after that by KubeCon US. So October, we're going to be really busy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's all I can see about this announcement list is like, oh, yeah, every week there's going to be something big. And then we get a few weeks off before reInvent. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, a good, fun rest of the year, I think, as we head into the, the final days of the month of the year. So, there you go. That's it for another fantastic week here in the cloud. Thanks, Jonathan and Ryan. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Well, uh, Jonathan, we, uh, we want to talk to you because uh, there's been a death in your British family. In my royal family. Yes. In your royal family, yes. The royal, the royal we, in this case. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we want to talk about it last week, but you weren't here because you, you were busy, but, uh, you know, we, there's been a lot of things that have happened. So, you know, first of all, we want to wish your condolences to you that the queen is dead and apologies for that. Uh, you know, you, you didn't seem as upset as some of my other British friends were. So you apparently your U S citizenship has, has done its effect and made you no longer care about the monarchy. So that was a, that was a win. But, uh, overall, uh, what, what's your take on the queen's passing? Well, I wasn't expecting to chat about this this, this afternoon. Um, I, I mean, I have thoughts. She was 96 years old. I think she's lived an incredibly uh, busy uh, and perhaps somewhat privileged life. But yeah, it's I've, the thing I've been thinking about the most is is how there's lots of commentary on social media about, oh, no place for the monarchy, no place for this. We should dissolve the monarchy or lots of different things. And I think that ultimately I, the thing that's on my mind is how people like the Queen were born into a system, a very complicated system where there are expectations. And it's very difficult. I mean, very few people have actually abdicated over the years. 
they're born into the system and they, they somewhat have to play along. And I, I wonder how much um, that really affects somebody's enjoyment in life. Um, personally, I'm not, a, I'm not a royalist. I don't think there's much of a place for a self-appointed um, monarch anymore in a, in a democracy. It's fair. It's a, you know, I've learned now that the British don't have free speech. So you can't say that in British soil, that there shouldn't be a king. But <laughs> uh, it is, a, you know, it is interesting, the monarchy and how it's, you know, because the, there's a lot of people talking about, uh, you know, the fact that people are cheering her passing and, and you know, the sign of, you know, the imperialism that the British Empire used to push onto the world and how much destruction they caused. And then there's there's a British perspective, which is very, like, this is a national tragedy and everyone is lost. And there's American perspective, which is like, eh, okay. <laughs> Although there are, there are pockets of people I've met, even Americans, who are like, yeah, I'm going to watch the funeral. Uh, I'm very interested and is very upset by it. So it's it's interesting how it's kind of impacted people in all kinds of different ways. And, you know, reflecting on, you know, when presidents die here in the United States, like, there's you know, there's some pomp and circumstance to it, but there's really not a lot of, of things. But, you know, hearing stories about like, well, there's a 22 hour queue to go pass by the, her, her, where she's laying in wait, yeah. um, you know, to see, you know, to pass, give last respects, like just kind of amazing. And just things that I, you know, cause it never happened in my lifetime <laughs> that someone in the monarchy has passed, but you know, the, it's amazing how deeply embedded it is into British culture, which I don't think I realized, um, you know, through parliament, all our other fun of Boris Johnson, all the other crazy British things like Brexit, you know, this is kind of the staid, steady, true uh, piece of that, of the government in Britain. That I just didn't understand. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it's, she just happens to be a descendant of the, of the last people who won the war against the previous monarchy. Um, like, <laughs> I don't subscribe to the, uh, to this sort of, uh, God appointed us to rule the country kind of thing when, you know, I studied history when I was in school. I know how many times the, the monarchy have overthrown a, a different family. Um, having said that, I think she did bring some stability. She didn't abuse the powers. She she, let, she left the democratic process to the democratic process, even at times when I think it would have been nice if she hadn't, like Brexit, for example. Um, but who knows what uh, what Charles will do if he'll, be, if he'll do the same thing. I mean, he's, I mean, it's so early in the, in the history of it. So it's, time will tell. Um, but you know, I assume the fact that he's not going to last, uh, maybe quite as long as 96. <laughs> so maybe we will have to do this again. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I'm sure, certainly with our lifetime, I think there'll be a, another change of monarchy. That's if he doesn't, um, just abdicate and let his son rule the country. That'll be kind of an interesting situation. Unlikely. But, um, I mean, growing up as a, as a teen, um, Prince Charles was always very involved in uh, science and technology and promoting promoting STEM before STEM was a thing. Um, and so there were the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. Um, yeah, all kinds of all kinds of things. So it's it's nice to see that somebody who is now potentially in a position to guide the country or influence the government um, actually cares about the scientific process and technology and and. Uh, less about intangible things. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Anything uh, from you, Ryan, or are you just listening in? Well, I, I mean, the only, I'm, I'm very detached from it. So other than hearing the news, um, you know, like it's, it's, I, I'm more fascinated by it, like the oddities and the weirdness of, you know, the changeover of something that's been in place for 70 years, you know, like the, you find out that the, you know, the Heinz ketchup labels need to be, 
redesigned. They probably can't use the same thing because that was completely tied to the queen and not to the monarchy at all. Like it's a strange little anachronisms of, of monarchy, which is already sort of illogical. And then the fact that it's so, it was so the last her reign was, you know, so long lived that people don't even know what all of the things mean anymore. Oh, I, that's true. I didn't even think about the fact that, you know, the money has to change not only in, in mm-hmm. Britain, but in like a bunch of other countries yeah. as well, because yeah. she's the face of the, of the currency. Uh, that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Just little things like that. And she was like, oh, wow. You know, because we only have dead presidents. So you don't really think about that on the U.S. currency, you know. Like, so, like, yeah. Pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. I will say it's been pretty poor taste. People people cheering the death of somebody. I, I don't care um, your, your thoughts on whether or not her, her role as queen is um, is appropriate anymore in terms of being a leader of a commonwealth. Uh, but I think I think generally cheering the death of somebody who's actually been a fairly decent person is I don't know kind of inappropriate. Yeah, it, I mean it's always in poor taste. I mean, like there's anytime there's these type of things happen, like nine eleven, we just passed the anniversary of that as well, right? And there, you know, during that when that happened, there's reports of people cheering and you know Middle East and places where they saw us as big oppressors. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of a reality that, you know, just, no matter how good you think you are, there's people who hate you. <laughs> That'll always be the way it works. Uh, and, you know, but yeah, it's sort of like, you know, you can, you wish people would sort of hold those opinions themselves for just a little while, let people grieve and, and go through the process. And then, uh, you know, you can say, I'm so glad she's gone later <laughs> when it's not so fresh. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's sort of a, a weird thing. Well, good. Well, for all of our British listeners, we uh, hope that uh, you go through this transition smoothly <laughs> and uh, through all the different things. But uh, we will see you guys next week here at the show. Yep. Take care. See you later. See ya.